0: Good morning Sun Valley, it's good to see you today again. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark now for some time and uh, we are seeing that that Mark is establishing the true identity of Christ Jesus. He begins the book by announcing his identity, the Son of God, the God of the universe, here he is, and then he continues to establish that along the way by way of argument, demonstrating that Jesus is in fact that person that he is the God of heaven, that he is actually also the solution to any chaos that might come our way. Mark seems to move from chaotic scenario to the next, beyond a shadow of doubt establishing that Jesus is, in fact, the answer to chaos, not just in the first century, but in the 21st century. Uh, We see it again here today in our story, Mark chapter 5. He, he, we see in this, in this amazing story today that uh, Jesus is, is dealing with the chaos of this man. And his chaos, although extreme, is not that much different than our chaos. We all have chaos in our lives. Sometimes we are responsible for that chaos and other times we're not. But we all face chaos on a daily basis. I think that right now in our experience uh, we're seeing more chaos in our lives than we've ever seen before. I don't know if that's how you see things or not, but I think that's how I see things. That we've got a world full of chaos, lives full of chaos, and the question is, are we skilled at dealing with chaos? Are we able to deal with this chaos on a daily a daily uh, term? What we see here in this passage are are three different pictures, if you will, uh, and I've, I've titled these uh, in your outline, the first being the conditions before encountering Jesus. You see the conditions that, this, that were taking place before this man encountered Jesus? Uh, they were chaotic conditions, weren't they? Can you see them there? It seems that just about the time the disciples were recovering from that wild, chaotic storm at sea that we studied last week. Jesus takes them into another storm of a different kind, but a storm nonetheless. I can picture it now. The sea was still very calm, maybe so calm that they had to row to shore because Jesus had quieted the wind. Maybe their luggage had dried out by now. The sun was warm, certainly. The disciples were excited to be away from the busy clamoring crowds and enjoying a little downtime in a retreat setting, right? What a uh, serene sense that you get as you think about what they're, uh, they're approaching here on the shore. And then all of a sudden, Crazy Carl comes running out of the shadows. and uh, says here, in the nude, filthy, dirty, bleeding, screaming at the top of his lungs. <laughs> uh, that's always going to kill any serenity in the moment. I don't know if you've had that experience Uh, You probably have if you have children, but uh, that's the kind of serenity that was interrupted here by this guy. It was extreme. But Jesus took this situation uh, to further cement in the minds of his disciples that he was the Lord of everything. Not just the Lord of the sea, not just the Lord of Capernaum, but the Lord of everything. Including this wild, demon-possessed man. He'd already thrown out demons, we read that in chapter one. He'd healed diseases, he changed the weather even. And now this, this was a new arena for Jesus and his disciples, and it was in this arena Jesus wanted to establish his lordship as well in their eyes. Was he in charge here in this arena? Well, let me tell you why this was a different arena. It was across the lake, outside the boundaries, This was was a Gentile region for the most part. Uh, There were some irreligious Jews who lived there, but it was outside Jesus' jurisdiction, so to speak. Or was it? Would Jesus have authority and power here like he had across the lake or even on the lake? This is new territory. Jesus wanted to show that indeed he did. His disciples needed to know this. So when they went out of territory They knew that this powerful one was with them, even there. So we see this story uh, unfolding in front of us, and what we see here is a clear picture of Satan's destructive purposes and his power to accomplish those purposes. And then, of course, over and above all of that, we see Jesus as the solution to that chaos, to that destructive purpose. This poor, miserable, demon-possessed man was under the direct control of Satan, we see. Um, this man, like all people at some point, was suffering at the hands of the enemy. How do we see this? First of all, we see that he was, def- he was defiled by Satan, a defiled man. He lived in a graveyard. And if you know anything about the Jews, uh, they would have viewed this man as defiled. He lived among the dead, literally. In this particular region of the Gerasenes, the tombs were actually carved in the sides of the hills. It was sandstone. And so they just got out their shovels and and picks and, and dug into the hillside, made a cave to bury their loved ones and their relatives. And these caves were large enough to stand in. And that's where this guy was living. He was living amongst the dead, literally. Moving in and out of different caves, different tombs. Uh, It's obvious from this story that this man was dangerous and and very disturbed. Luke records that this man hadn't worn clothes in a long time. Uh, This reveals, of course, his state of mind. He was suffering greatly at the hands of these demons that were controlling him. He spent his days and nights raging, screaming, cutting himself. And then he comes running up to these wide-eyed disciples who didn't know what to think of these things. It says... As we read, the people had tried to restrain him many times in many different ways without success. He broke, wrenched apart the chains that were holding him because of his demon possession. He was unusually strong. Matthew records that this demoniac was extremely violent and no one could get near him any longer because he was so strong, so crazy, so out of control. He was defiled. Next we see that... He was almost destroyed, not just defiled, but almost to the place of total destruction by Satan. In his torment, he tried to hurt himself by cutting himself with sharp stones. Many commentators say that he was actually trying to commit suicide. Um, Whether or not this motivated his behavior, the man was in agony, obviously, wasn't he? We would say chaos ruled in this man's life. Satan was destroying him, day by day, bit by bit, cut by cut. And why was Satan doing this? Because this is what Satan does. He's a cruel master. All who are captives to Satan pay a price in one way or another. Listen to how Jesus describes Satan in John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and, and destroy. In describing Satan, he called him a thief, who came to destroy, to harm, to kill, to disrupt. And that's exactly what he was doing with this man in Mark 5. And then in, in John 8:44, Jesus speaking again of Satan, says Satan was a murderer from the beginning. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he, he is a liar and the father of lies. And of course, Peter, who was on the beach that day when they landed in the Gerasenes and saw this crazy guy running at them, in the condition he was wrote this in his first epistle chapter 5 verse 8 be sober-minded be watchful your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour this guy had been devoured that's what peter was referring to peter had seen it with his own eyes and peter says what be watchful be sober-minded because this is what satan does This is his game. Satan and his demons aim to do harm, to kill, to destroy. That is why Satan is called Apollyon, the great destroyer. That's his name. And he doesn't need to possess you to accomplish these things. This man was possessed by demons, obviously. But he doesn't need to possess you and I to accomplish destruction in our lives. We see it all around us. And not many of us are possessed, if any. We might read this story and come away with a conclusion like this, I'm not sure God can save a guy like that. Does That cross your mind? I'm not sure God could save a guy that far gone. Look at him. Look at how badly he is. But think about this for a second. E- each of us are in the same spiritual condition. As this man before we met Jesus. All externals aside, all the things that, that we do to, to fool one another, before we knew Christ, this was our heart. Like this man in Mark 5. As unsettling as that sounds, Mark includes stories about different kinds of people in different chaotic circumstances to let us know that we are all in the same boat. That's one of the primary purposes of his sharing these different scenarios. We may li- like to think that we're much more acceptable, more loving, more likable to Jesus than this poor guy. I mean, at least I don't run around naked and cutting myself, right? No. But before Jesus saved us, it seems to be our spiritual condition is a lot like this. Paul told the Colossians... You were without God, before you knew Christ, you were without God, and without hope. No God, no hope. Just like this guy. We would say, hopeless. But, thanks be to God, we come to verse 6. And we see a wonderful truth. Look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, just think what Charles Spurgeon could do with that line. I can hear it. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he was out there, but he wasn't too far, you could hear Spurgeon just going off on just that one phrase. When Jesus enters the picture, all hope is possible. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Hopeless folks, isn't that a wonderful truth? Seeing Jesus afar off, it says. He ran and fell down before him. This man's situation looked indeed hopeless. But what Mark is saying here, whenever Jesus comes near, there's hope. And Mark tells us there's two reasons here. There's two reasons that we can have hope, even in our hopeless condition, even in the hopeless condition of maybe our neighbors, our friends, our children, our spouses. There are two reasons for hope in chaos from this story. And, and you don't have to be far off to need some hope. You need hope even if you're in Christ, don't you? This world can be a scary place in the chaos we're experiencing. What's your hope? Is your hope that in November we'll get a Congress that's a little more reasonable? Is that your hope? Try again. Strike one. So where is our hope, Christian? Well, there are two reasons that Mark gives us that we can have hope. First is this, Jesus' superiority. You know why you can have hope no matter what your chaos? Jesus is superior to your chaos. Amen. Amen. This man had some chaos, didn't he? This story tells us that Jesus was superior to his chaos, and this story was written for us. See, Mark wants to show that Jesus is superior to any problem, whether it be this demoniac in the first century or whether it be you and me in the 21st century. All forms of chaos are solved by Christ Jesus because he's superior to all things, including chaos. How do we see this here? How do we see Jesus' superiority established right off the bat? Well, what's the first thing this guy does? This demon-possessed man, this out-of-control man, this lost, hopeless individual, what does he do? He runs up and he bows to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was superior. Jesus was superior. This man bowed probably not out of an act of worship, but just out of submission. This is what inferior people do to superiors they they bow we see it often don't we yeah the man bowed when when we recognize jesus for who he really is we come running submitting bowing looking for help in our chaos let me say this submission to him is the first step in finding help from him You want help in your chaos? You want help in the world's chaos? You want help in any chaos? Guess what's the first step to help? Submission. Always. You remember the story of Jacob in his wrestling match with God? What was God after? This. Submission. He wanted Jacob to say, Uncle. (laughs) And he did, didn't he? And he was, his name was changed that night to Israel. This is exactly what the demoniac did. He submitted to the superiority of Christ. Whether or not he came running for help or the demons that were controlling him uh, were trying to intimidate Christ, we're not sure, the text doesn't say. But I think these demons knew that they couldn't intimidate Jesus, don't you? These these. Approaches to Christ, either uh, running to him for help or trying to run at him and scare him off, are the same ways that desperate people still react to Jesus. If you're desperate, there's one of two ways you're going to respond to Christ. You can try to get him out of your life, away from your vision, or you can come running to him for help. Those are the only two options. So we have the superiority of Jesus over this man, seen in his bowing. Secondly, what else do we see submitting here? The demons, <laughs> right? The demons submitted. The Apostle John, who was also part of this, you know, audience watching this unfold, said this in 1 John 3:8. Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came to deal with these kind of things that are recorded here in Mark 5. This has been God's strategy since the Garden of Eden when the devil made so much difficulty and trouble there, chaos there. And now we see it here. Look at how Mark records the submission of these demons. It's pretty impressive. First of all, the demons were using the vocal cords of this man. Do you see that? And crying out with a loud voice he said, What have you to do with me, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. It was the man's vocal cords, but the demon speaking, is what we discover. And and by the way, this this loud cry that we have recorded here is the same loud cry we heard back in chapter 1 when he threw out a demon. You remember that? And what was that we discovered? Back then, we learned it's the same here. It was a cry of terror, a shriek of terror. Oh, no, it is God of the universe here in front of me. You are the son of the most high God. I recognize you, was the words that were said. Why? Because demons dread Jesus Christ. They called him the son of the most high, which is a clear designation of deity. The demons in this man once served this same Christ in heaven before the fall of Satan. They knew who he was. They were once serving him, minute by minute. They knew he had the power and the authority to do what he wanted, which is why they begged for mercy. The name that they referred to, Son of the Most High God, meant that the demons believed that Jesus actually possessed the same authority and essence of God the Father. We remember you, second one of the Trinity. The demon said he wanted nothing to do with Jesus in verse 7. Do you see that? What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? That's another way of saying, I don't want anything to do with you. Please, back off. Give me mercy. It's like what you do when you run into an unleashed pit bull. It's like, okay, good boy. It's, this is what was happening here in this setting. They knew that Jesus had the power and authority to send them to the pit prematurely for eternal punishment, where they eventually will show up anyways. But what did, the Je- what did Jesus do? What was his response to this initial shrie- shrieking? Jesus commanded the unclean spirits to name themselves and come out. He established his superiority immediately. He said, what's your name? Come out. Not because he didn't know who they were or what they were. It's because he wanted his disciples, Peter, John, and the rest of them, standing around observing all of this with mouths open to see that the enemy had vast numbers and had very powerful intent. The, the demon reported his name to be legion, and what was his explanation of legion? For we are many. Maybe even a legion. What was a legion? Well, Roman military legion consisted of 6,000 men. Were there 6,000 demons? Who knows, but there were a lot, at least 2,000, right? They entered the 2,000 pigs, which was why Jesus sent them to the pigs, to show his followers, look, there's a lot of them, and they want to do damage. This is what they're up to. But from this little small vignette here that Mark leaves us with, we see that there are some things we can learn about demon activity. And I I say this carefully because the intent of this story is not to teach us about demons. (laughs) It's to teach us about Christ. Okay? The story is always about Christ in the New Testament. But It is established here by the words of Christ himself, so what can we learn on a superficial level about demons, about the the evil spiritual world? One, they're organized in military fashion. They called themselves legion, it's a military term. Secondly, they're numerous. (laughs) Satan's forces are huge. And of course, this didn't phase Jesus hey, we've got a lot of guys here, we could really put up a fight. No, that wasn't on the table. And they knew it, and Jesus knew it. He wasn't intimidated by the large contingent of demons. He's Lord of all. Thirdly, we we learn that they serve under Satan as their leader. Unanimously they serve. They're not divided, as the Pharisees suggested in Mark 3. No. But they are very powerful. They are a legion. They did destroy 2,000 pigs. They had ruined this man's life. And I think we learn as we put these ideas from Mark 5 together with other places in Scripture like Acts 19, not, we're not to mess around with demons. They're powerful. You remember Acts 19, right? The sons of Sceva, seven sons of Sceva, thought they'd get in on the, on the exorcism idea. Remember that? Uh, they, they were impressed by... Uh, what Paul could do by throwing out evil spirits. They were impressed by what they heard Jesus could do. So they thought they'd get in on it. And they tried it on a demon-possessed man. One man possessed by one demon. What was the result of that? How'd that work out? I'll read it for you. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on these seven guys. One man leaped on seven guys, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That's what happens when you mess around with demons. You leave the room naked and bleeding, it says in the, in the King James. So, what do we learn? <laughs> Don't mess around with demons. And then we see Jesus sending them into the pigs for the very reason I just mentioned to demonstrate to Jesus' disciples that these, there were actually thousands of demons and they were real and dangerous. Look what they do. Imagine the, the scene 2,000 pigs, you know. Squealing at the top of their lungs down into the water to their demise. So, what we see here in this story, the first reason for hope in chaos is the superiority of Jesus over all things, including your chaos, including the chaos of demons in this man. Everything. He is superior to them all. But, in order, listen, in order to benefit from an encounter with Christ, there needs to be a submission to his superiority. Do You hear that? In order to benefit from the grace of God in Christ Jesus, you must submit to his Lordship first and foremost. There is no forgiveness of sin without submission to the Savior. You want forgiveness? Submit to the Savior. There is no heaven without bowing to heaven's king. Do you get it? Unless you submit to the Lord of all, you get no benefit from him. I I pray that you haven't believed the lie that Jesus is just the one who hands out tickets to heaven. You get one of those, you're good. No. Receiving the benefit of heaven, receiving the benefit of forgiveness and and the absence of guilt comes with submission to the Savior, the Lord of all. That's where it begins. For this man in the story and for you and me and for everyone who comes to Christ. The second reason we have hope in this story of chaos, second reason you and I have hope in our chaos, not just firstly because he's superior, but... This is, I love this next point, is Jesus' compassion. Oh, we could spend some time here, couldn't we? And we'd love to, on the compassion of our Savior. Think about this story with me. Back out a bit and look, look from a bird's eye view what's happening here. We we see that Jesus took a trip across this dangerous Sea of Galilee where where his disciples feared for their lives for good reason. And he did so simply for the following reasons to teach them to trust him and to show compassion and mercy on this demon possessed man. How do we know that? Because right after this experience with the demon possessed man, they got back in the boat and went back to Capernaum. They didn't get to stay for their retreat, they were never going to have a retreat. The retreat was simply going through a storm on the sea and another storm with the crazy guy. And then they went back. Why? Because Jesus is a compassionate Savior. That's why. He had a divine appointment to get across the sea to save this poor soul who needed him. Wow. This man was suffering greatly. Jesus knew it and went to simply save him. What's this tell you about your own life, about the people in your life who may be suffering with similar chaos? Jesus is compassionate. He loves people. In fact, He's a friend of sinners. Jesus came all the way across the sea to make this guy whole. How do we know he was whole? Oh, look at the description of him after he, was in, after he had encountered Christ. He was seated. Whenever you come across this idea of being seated in the scripture, normally it's expressing rest. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because he's resting from his work that was accomplished on Calvary. He's seated. This man, seated in the presence of Christ, why? Because he was at rest, he was at peace, he was restored. He was whole, clothed in his right mind. (laughs) The compassion of Christ is, is beautifully displayed here. He will do whatever it takes to save one of his own. If Jesus is intent on saving you, there's no place that you can go to get away from his compassion, his mercy, his grace. He's a compassionate Savior, and he will pursue you to the end. You know what the Puritans used used to call Christ, right? The hound of heaven, have you heard that? They called Jesus the hound of heaven, why? Because he will not let you go. He will track you down and will love you no matter what. (laughs) What a wonderful thought. You know why Jesus can handle your chaos? It's because he's superior to your chaos and he's compassionate for people like you and me. He knows we're just like this guy. He knows we're way in over our heads. He knows that our circumstances are beyond our ability. He knows we need his help. So he shows shows up and does it. Finally, we see in verses 14 through 20, the conditions after encountering Jesus. So the conditions before they encountered Jesus were chaotic, right? That means like serious chaos. Then he encountered Christ and, and experienced the superiority and compassion of this Savior. And then here, conditions after we encountered Christ are just as moving, if not more. I'm going to read verses 14 through 20 for you again, just to cement this into your brain. Listen. The herdsman of the pigs fled and told it in the city and in the county, country and people came to see what it was that had happened. What had happened? Well, we got some bobbing pigs in the Sea of Galilee is what happened, right? So, verse 15, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid. how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Oh. You know, Mark's record of the conditions after he encountered Christ, after this man encountered Christ, is a rare view, a rare look into a post-miracle experience. Normally, in the Gospels, when we see Jesus doing great things like this, we don't get the benefit of seeing what happened afterwards. Wouldn't you like to know what happened to the leper? It's your, your guess. How, how about the, the man whose hand was with her? Did he get a job finally? Was he able to serve his family like he wanted to his whole life? What, what happened to all these people that Jesus healed? We don't know because it's not recorded. Here, we finally get a picture. We finally see exactly what happened. And it's a, a wonderful picture with at least three lessons in it. Let me let me share these lessons with you. First are, is this. Our transformation, our transformation that comes from encountering Christ may offend people. Do you hear that? Not from me, but from what Mark recorded here. When Jesus transforms you, that's always not met with enthusiasm from the people that used to know you. Some of you who have been transformed by God's grace know exactly what I'm talking about. It's always not a big hit to say this to your once partying friends. I don't do that anymore. Never received real well. Our transformation may offend people. The people from the surrounding villages looked at what Jesus did for this man, what drastic changes he made, and they grew concerned that Jesus just might demand the same changes in their sinful lives. That unsettled them. It unsettles people who used to know you before you came to Christ. These people who used to know this man were comfortable in their sin. They enjoyed their materialistic. How do we know they were materialistic? They were raising pigs illegally. They weren't allowed to raise pigs back then. (laughs) They were materialistic. Everybody wanted pigs, but no one was allowed to raise them, except these folks. They they were comfortable in this materialistic, godless living, and it was obvious that if they allowed Jesus to remain, he'd demand some changes to the status quo. It's not okay to rob banks anymore, (laughs) right? We don't do that anymore. We're going to stop messing around with other people's wives, all right? It's not okay. That's the kind of thing Jesus does when he comes in and you have an encounter with him. And they weren't interested in change. Think about the miracle of exorcism that they witnessed. It should have produced a revival amongst these people of Gerasene. But it didn't. In fact, it scared them, made them uncomfortable, and caused them to plead, it says, beg Jesus to leave. Please leave us alone. We like the way things are going here. <laughs> Their hearts were calloused and depraved. They preferred a raving, demon-filled lunatic over Jesus. They would rather deal with demons who who wouldn't oppose their sinful practices to than to be confronted with the Lord of life. Jesus knew all about this. He said this in John 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Why do people love darkness rather than light? Well, in darkness, you can do what you always do. Light exposes that stuff. So I prefer the dark. What this story is telling us here is that there is a blinding power of unbelief. The demon-possessed man was the only one who was changed that day. Everyone heard of the story, but only one man was changed. Secondly, we learn that Jesus knows best. Jesus knows better than we do, actually, what role we should play in his kingdom, I want you to hear this if you're not satisfied with where God has asked you to serve. Jesus knows best, better than we do, what role we should play in his kingdom. What did we see the transformed man doing? He wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to get in the boat and go with him back to Capernaum. He wanted to become a disciple, maybe an apostle. That's how much he loved Christ. He was ready to leave it all. But Jesus, it seems, had other plans. I think we can understand why this man wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to be with the one who radically changed him. He wanted to be near the one who could cause him to grow, to serve, to become more like Jesus. That's a natural response. It's a good response. And we can also probably imagine that his hometown had certain opinions of him. He probably wanted to get away from that. He probably burnt some bridges, don't you think? Maybe even with his wife and his children. His reputation was most likely ruined. He He would have lost a job, been ashamed to return to his family and neighbors, but it seems like his desire for deeper discipleship, closer fellowship with Christ, and a lifelong service was rejected by Christ. Seems out of character, doesn't it, for Jesus to say, no, you you stay, I don't want you to follow here. Well, why? What do we learn here? We learn this, Jesus knows best. He had other plans for this changed man, Jesus knew the best way that this man could serve his kingdom was this, go home, go home. The man may have been confused and disappointed, but Jesus knew how this person would be best used by a sovereign God in his kingdom, go home. Let me bring it into your world. You may have strong desires to be or do certain things for the Lord, You may love him with everything in you and want to have a great impact for him in this world, and you think it would be best if you were a famous missionary, or a well-known author, or a popular conference speaker, or a Bible scholar, fill in the blank. But where you choose may not be the best and most strategic place Jesus would have you serve. Jesus told this guy, go home, go home. Jesus may want something like that for you something ordinary but we want something flamboyant right just think how much influence I could have if if, you know I I don't want ordinary your desire to have big impact for the cause of Christ is critically important so the story isn't about losing that interest the story is to trust a sovereign Lord who loves his people and knows exactly where they will have the most impact. In the same way that Jesus was sovereign over the storm on the Sea of Galilee, he's sovereign over the place that his people serve. He's the architect and he designs the plans of the kingdom and his plans always happen. His plans always accomplish their purpose. J.C. Ryle, an old pastor and commentator, author, wrote this. Um, about this particular story, writing about those who really wanna go serve God and and make a large impact in their culture. He said this, with the best intentions, they are all apt to fall into mistakes about their plans in life, their choices, their their moves, their professions. They forget that, they forget what we like best is not always best for our souls and that the seed of grace needs winter as well as summer, cold as well as heat to ripen for glory. That place and position is most helpful for us in which we are kept most humble. So what are we learning from this post exposure to Christ? What are we learning from this amazing story, our transformation? may and most likely will offend. Jesus knows where we should serve best. And thirdly, I want you to look down here at verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said, go home. Our oikos, the word home is oikos in Greek. And it means your sphere of influence. It means those who know you best. It means those that you're closest with and love the most. Our oikos is of first importance. Go home. Go back to where you were. They need to hear about Jesus. Jesus needs you where he's placed you. Grow where you're planted. You might be tempted to think, but I could be so much more influential if I had a bigger audience, a different environment. Just think of how powerful a missionary I could be if I just went to the Sudan. But Jesus thought this man's family and friends needed to hear about Jesus. Jesus told him to go home. Go home and tell your friends. Tell them about how I've changed your life. Go and live a transformed life before your family and friends. I need people who will live for me in front of those who know them best. I need people who have been transformed by my grace and my mercy to be witnesses for me in ordinary places. Some need to go, yes, which is why we sent Andy and Kelly. But some need to stay. What did Jesus say in Acts 1.8? Go, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost. Where's, what's Jerusalem? Home. That's oikos for you and me. That's our first place. Go and live the transformed life there. Home is where God wants you to make an impact for him. Ordinary is where most of us are. <clears throat> These people who know the old you will be quick to recognize the new you. They will see that you've been with Jesus. They'll see something's different. Your priorities, your interests, your passions, your affections have all encountered the God of heaven. And you're no longer like you used to be. You're Family needs to see that. Your neighbors need to see that. Those friends, neighbors, and relatives who knew your quirks, your failures, your self-centeredness, your pursuit of worldly things, they will see this new creation. And they will ask the question, what gives? And you'll say, Jesus Christ. The old you will be gone, and they'll recognize it. Jesus said, go home. Next, we see he said, Go home and tell. Go home and open your mouth. <laughs> Let me say this there's no such thing as a covert witness for Christ, there, there is no such thing as undercover saints. They don't exist. Go, Jesus said, and tell. Open your mouth. When Jesus returned to this region, we'll get there when we get to Mark 7. Guess what he found? Guess what he discovered when he came back to the same region? He packed the house on the first night. Why? Because this guy did what he was told. He went back to the Decapolis, verse 20, and proclaimed how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And so when Jesus showed up a few months later to the Decapolis, he packed the house on the first night because of the faithfulness of this man. (laughs) You know, not everyone is called to be an apostle. Not everyone's called to be a missionary or a preacher or a teacher, but we are all called without exception to go home and tell. You do a little church history digging in this particular area. And a lot of important uh, ancient church history things happened in this area. Like Nicaea is in this area. Does that ring a bell to anybody? The Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed. You know there is a likelihood that there's a large portion of people in this room because this man was faithful. because he did what Jesus said, went and told. Just like Andrew told his brother Peter, Philip told his friend Nathaniel, the Samaritan woman told, excuse me, her neighbors in Sychar. Like Psalm 66 tells us, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he's done for my soul. Friends, Jesus had sovereign authority over the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He had sovereign authority over the demons and all that plagued this poor man that day. He has sovereign authority over everyone who comes into his family. He has sovereign authority over where we will serve. We, We may want a lot more. We may think that we have better ideas than God. But... We need to go with Jesus on this one. Go home and tell. And see what God will do. Just with an ounce of faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord. What a wonderful story we see here. Revealing your goodness and grace, your mercy and compassion, your love and forgiveness. We see this, this unworthy individual who had been ruined by Satan and his demons being totally transformed by you, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we sit here in awe and we sit here and are excited and motivated to go out and be faithful as this unnamed man was to our neighbors, our friends, our family members. I ask that you Holy Spirit would, would take this truth and plant it deep in our soul, that it might take root and that we might live this way day to day, doing the ordinary things for the cause of Christ making much of Jesus to everyone we encounter. Use us, Father, for your glory, for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.